Welcome back to Books with Bert. We're continuing with my book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Today's entrepreneur is Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon lived a very significant life, but few people know much about him. He was a Pittsburgh banker and established many industries in the United States, but that's not the heart of his contribution. What made Andrew Mellon significant was his life after age 65. As the Secretary of Treasury under Presidents Harding and Coolidge, Mellon's unique tax policy, unheard of before in any nation that I know of, literally launched Americans into unprecedented prosperity. To help me highlight Mellon's remarkable story, I've asked my wife, Anita Folsom, to join the discussion. Thank you, Bert. I'm happy to be here, and I'll uh, be glad to ask a few questions. Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge were elected president and vice president in 1920. Andrew Mellon was a banker and entrepreneur, not a politician. Why did they want him? Because the economy in 1920 was in shambles. Uh, Harding believed he needed someone who understood economics to restore our livelihood. If you were to ask me in one word what the problem was, I would say the word progressives. The progressives favored the growth of government and believed that problems could be solved by increasing the size of government. Now, if you were to ask me what the problem is in two words, I would say Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was elected president in 1912. He was a progressive president. When he was elected, we had low unemployment, a low national debt, and low taxes. We didn't even have an income tax. The income tax came in in Wilson's first year, 1913. The Federal Reserve also came in that year. In addition, we began more regulating of business. By that, I mean the rates that some businesses could charge, the wages they could pay, became subject to federal regulation. That created a stifling effect on some businesses. The bigger problem really was World War I, President Wilson had a biased trade policy against Germany. Uh, Germany and England were at war, and in 1914, when the war began, it was a European war, but it expanded, and Wilson had this policy against Germany. Germany eventually reacted against it. Uh, They attacked American ships, and the United States came into the war. Now, when Wilson ended his second term in office... The national debt had gone from $1 billion to $24 billion. That's a 24-fold increase in the national debt. Never has a presidential administration had anything close to that. Uh, For example, we heard complaints about President Obama doubling the national debt. Try to imagine a 24-fold increase in the national debt. That's what happened under Wilson. And the interest payments on this national debt were almost the size of what the national debt was before Wilson came into office. And those are just annual payments. Uh, The tax rate had gone up to 73% on wealthy people. Uh, Part of that was to help pay off the debt. Unemployment was 12%. So in 1920, the American economy was in as bad a shape as it had ever been in American history, except for the Civil War era. Europe had problems as well after World War I. Much of uh, 
France and parts of Belgium were devastated by the combat. There was a huge unemployment problem in Europe, even in the 1920s, as well as inflation. Yet, uh, what was going on in the United States then? Actually, Anita, the United States was the only nation in the world that had real prosperity in the 1920s. And Andrew Mellon was behind that prosperity, and it's why he is significant. Tell me more about Andrew Mellon. What was his background? Andrew Mellon was a Pittsburgh banker. He was also an entrepreneur. He was a significant investor in Alcoa Aluminum uh, in establishing that company, also in Gulf Oil. And he even had an all-aluminum car trying to promote Alcoa. At Gulf Oil, he was helpful trying to get corner gas stations there for the new automobile industry. He was quite an entrepreneur, and Harding wanted to get a finance guy in his cabinet to help resolve the economic problems the United States was facing in the 1920s. So President-elect Harding invited Andrew Mellon to his home in Marion, Ohio. Did Mellon take the train to Marion? In today's economy, Mellon might have taken a private jet, but yes, he, he took the train from Pittsburgh to Marion, Ohio, and he arrived at the train station in Marion and got off the train, and there was no one there to greet him. And that was fine. He asked the conductor where Harding's house was. The conductor said, well, do you want a taxi cab? He said, nope, I'll walk. And Mellon, in fact, made the mile long, it's even a little bit more than a mile, walk to Harding's house carrying his suitcase. And when he got there, he stood in line waiting to have an interview I think that tells you something about Mellon. Does this sound like the kind of person being economical and a certain amount of humility to stand in line? Does that sound like the kind of person we want in government? Yes, I think it is. So once Andrew Mellon became Secretary of the Treasury, what was his plan? I'm glad you asked that because that's the heart of this podcast. His plan was called the Mellon Plan by many people, and the heart of this plan was cutting tax rates for all Americans in order to encourage investment and spending. Mellon knew firsthand how hard it was for speculative ventures, such as making aluminum or drilling for oil, uh, to raise money needed for success. Uh, poor or middle-class people living from payday to payday could rarely afford to invest in these high-risk ventures. Only the wealthy, rich people could afford the risk and supply the capital to start up the high-risk industries which we needed to get the American economy going. Now, with the 73% income tax, that's three out of every $4 for rich people paying to the government. When top incomes like that are, are hit with high taxes, they shift into tax-exempt investments. Some of it's like uh, Mellon himself, for example, had an art collection. Franklin Roosevelt was a stamp collector. Some people collected rare coins and antiques. Uh, some people made foreign investments. Uh, you've heard of the Swiss banks are available to give you income. They, they shift their money out of the country, and then the Americans don't capture the wealth that the wealthy people have available for investment. As long as taxes were high, and they were high under President Wilson, investors would find some way to avoid them. 
tax rates had to be slashed to attract large fortunes back into productive enterprise. Now, Mellon added a twist to his argument, and he said this, more revenue for the government may often be obtained by lower rates. That sounds counterintuitive. More revenue for the government may be obtained by lower rates. Not just more revenue from the rich, Mellon predicted, but more revenue overall might come to the government if taxes were cut. He compared the government setting taxes on incomes to a business setting prices on products. Here's what Mellon said, quote, If a price is fixed too high, sales drop off and with them profits. Does anyone question that Henry Ford has made more money by reducing the price of his car from $3,000 to $380 and increasing his sales than he would have made by maintaining a high price and a greater profit per car, but selling fewer cars? Now, Mellon, of course, recognized there was a limit to how far you could go cutting taxes and still increasing revenue. He said this, The problem of government is to fix rates which will bring in a maximum amount of revenue to the Treasury and at the same time bear not too heavily on the taxpayer or on business enterprises. Mellon believed that 25% was about as much as rich people would pay in taxes before they rushed to tax shelters. Now, Mellon's prediction that lowering tax rates might produce more revenue for the government was controversial right from the start. His plan, dubbed the Mellon Plan, was gradually achieved in the 1920s through a series of tax cuts that got that rate down to 25% as a top rate on rich people and also reduced the rate on lower-income taxpayers. Did the progressives like Andrew Mellon's tax rates? Now, of course, the progressives didn't like the idea of the tax cuts on rich people, but you would think they would like the idea of the tax cuts on the lower-income people. The surprise here is they did not. The nature of the progressives is that they like big government, and therefore any tax cut they don't like because it removes revenue from the government and for the leaders of the government to spend it the way they think it ought to be spent. What I'm saying is the progressives oppose cutting the tax rates even on lower-income groups. When the income tax first became law, for example, Senator Robert La Follette of Wisconsin wanted the taxing to start at $10,000 instead of $20,000. In later congressional debates, he often tried to reduce the personal exemptions so that taxes would start on incomes of $1,000 instead of $2,000. In other words, he wanted the lower incomes tax. As governor of Wisconsin, La Follette pushed for a bill that allowed the state of Wisconsin to start taxing those who made as little as $800. When La Follette died in 1925, his son, Robert Jr., went to the Senate from Wisconsin and picked up where his father left off. He joined 13 other progressive senators in voting against Mellon's bill to cut taxes from 1.5% to 1.5% on those earning less than $4,000 per year. 
So all Americans received a tax cut. What were the results of that strategy? The results were exciting. When rich people only had to pay one in every $4, 25%, which is still a lot of money, to the government, they took their money out of the tax-exempt securities, the coin collections, the stamp collections, the Swiss banks, that sort of thing, tax-exempt bonds, and they put it into capital-intensive investments like the radio industry, refrigerators, telephones. Those were all inventions that were fairly recent that uh, became very popular in the 1920s. We had some new inventions come along and make the scene in the 1920s. I'm thinking of air conditioning. And air conditioning was developed after the tax cuts went into effect. And once air conditioning came into existence in the United States, movie theaters were the first to adopt air conditioning. And the movie theaters, therefore, were able to make profits in the hot summer months. And therefore, they made more money. And we had a new industry in the movies, the talking movies. And so talking movies are uh, invented just a few years after the air conditioning. There's a connection there. One good entrepreneurial invention leads to another. There were a whole host of smaller industries that got going in the 1920s. We had the invention of the zipper and development of the zipper. Scotch tape, sliced bread, and my favorite, the cheeseburger. All of these came into existence in the 1920s. With all these changes, what happened to the revenue coming into the government? Did they get more revenue or less? This is the interesting part. The federal government received more revenue after the tax cuts than they had in 1920. The amount of revenue, for example, in 1920 into the federal government with the 73% tax rate on rich people and the 4% tax rate on the lower incomes, uh, that revenue totaled about $700 million. In 1929, after the final tax cut in the Mellon plan, the revenue into the federal government was over $1 billion. In other words, it was 30% higher. The federal government received more revenue after cutting everybody's taxes than they had earlier. And not only did the government get more revenue, the lower taxes, of course, created the entrepreneurship. They gave us the air conditioning, the radios, the scotch tape, the sliced bread, and the cheeseburgers. This rise in our standard of living was unprecedented in the 1920s. And we see it in many ways. Many corporations went to the eight-hour day. Henry Ford had really started it with his Ford Motor Company, but many more corporations began going to an eight-hour day. People had more leisure time. We see the development of sports. We get uh, college football becomes big. We get pro football developed in the 1920s. We get bowl games, which get going for college football. And uh, baseball, my gosh, this was the heyday of baseball. It was a great radio game. It was a good game to see in person. Babe Ruth hit his 60 home runs and led the New York Yankees to the World Championship in 1927. We had the 1920s as a glorious decade of freedom from being constrained by 12 hours and 10 hours having to go to work. We have more leisure time. People's paychecks were larger. Unemployment went from 12% in 1921 to 2% in 1930. 
1923. It took just two years for much of this recovery to be realized. The United States stood virtually alone among nations of the world in achieving magnificent prosperity during the 1920s. Were the progressives won over by all these changes? You would think the progressives would be pleased that so many good things were happening to so many Americans. For example, college enrollments doubled in the 1920s. Uh, That's for black and white. And we see uh, other things. Life expectancy went up bigger in the 1920s than any other decade in our history. This includes all Americans. These are improvements in the lives of all Americans. But the progressives were not pleased. It represented less power being centralized in the federal government. The bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. got smaller. The progressives denigrated Mellon's achievements and Harding and Coolidge for approving them. They could hardly dispute the results. The progressives instead challenged his motives. For example, here's one illustration. In 1925, Senator George Norris of Nebraska, who was a good friend of Senator La Follette in Wisconsin, uh, Senator Norris announced, he said, Mr. Mellon himself gets a larger personal reduction than the aggregate of practically all the taxpayers in the state of Nebraska. In other words, see what he's saying is, look at the effect of these tax cuts. Andrew Mellon is a rich man, and the amount he saves by cutting the taxes to 25% maximum is greater than everybody, all the taxpayers in the whole state of Nebraska. However, the records showed, and Mellon had these records to show them, that he paid more in income taxes than did all of the taxpayers of the state of Nebraska. In other words, true, Mellon got more of a reduction on his taxes, but he paid more than all of the taxpayers in Nebraska. And so it benefited not only the taxpayers of Nebraska, but Mellon, of course, and most Americans. John Nance Garner, the Democrat leader of the House of Representatives, said in 1924 that the Mellon plan had, for its sole purpose, the reduction of the larger taxpayers at the expense of the smaller taxpayers. Now, do you see the problem here? He's saying, well, yeah, the larger taxpayers got reductions, but they were at the expense of the smaller taxpayer. Now, as we've seen, the tax rates were cut on the on everybody paying taxes. And Mellon had some data that showed, and, and this has been amply demonstrated, that people making less than $10,000 a year before the Mellon plan, they paid about one-fourth of all the income tax collected. After the Mellon plan was in effect, they only paid about 5%. In other words, most of the money that was coming into the federal government, over half of it, was generated by people making over $100,000 a year. The tax rate, the burden of the taxes, had been redistributed from middle-income taxpayers to large taxpayers, They were paying the bulk of the revenue that came into the federal government, but they were happy because their tax rates had gone down. They were making more money. They were paying into the government more money. And so the federal government had more revenue. The taxpayers had a lighter burden, and America had prosperity. 
So Andrew Mellon obviously did well. What have historians said in their textbooks? Have they praised Andrew Mellon? That's an important question because what are people learning today about Andrew Mellon? The answer is no, they have not praised him. But not only have they not praised him, they have criticized him. But what's worse, they have fabricated the facts and the criticism. In other words, we have fake history being written by textbook writers. And I mean major textbook writers. Let me give you a couple of examples here. Uh, the textbook, The National Experience, was a best-selling American history textbook. It was written in 1963 and was popular for about, oh, three, three or four decades. Uh, it, it was co-authored by John Blum, who was at Yale. He taught uh, George W. Bush, for example, and uh, Bush talks about him. And al also, uh, you know, the Clintons were at Yale. Now, among the other co-authors of that book are Arthur Schlesinger, who won a Pulitzer Prize, and C. Van Woodward, also of Yale, who won two Pulitzer Prizes. And so the interesting question then is, you have this uh, all-star cast of textbook writers. What do they say about the Mellon tax cuts? Here's what they say, and I quote, It was better, Mellon argued, to place the burden of taxes on lower-income groups. For taxing the rich inhibited their investments and thus retarded economic growth. You get that? They're saying, Mellon believed it was better to put the burden of taxes on lower-income groups. In fact, Mellon had cut the taxes eightfold on the lowest-income groups and only threefold on the top-income groups. Everybody got a tax cut. The lower income groups got the most tax cuts. And what this textbook says, uh, what Arthur Schlesinger, Pulitzer Prize winner, and C. Van Woodward, Pulitzer Prize winner, say is, it was better, Mellon argued, to place the burden of taxes on lower income groups. Now, if that were the only textbook to do that, we would just simply say that's an isolated case, but it seems to be rather typical. For example, what uh, most people think is the best-selling American history textbook entitled The American Pageant. We don't have the absolute figures for this, but this textbook has sold millions of copies. Uh, written by Thomas Bailey and David Kennedy of Stanford University, and has more recently they have added Elizabeth Cohen at Harvard to the textbook lineup. And Kennedy has won a Pulitzer Prize. And so you have another Pulitzer Prize winner among the textbook co-authors. The American pageant is often used in high school classes as well as college classes. And here's what they say about Mellon's tax cuts. They describe, quote, Mellon's spare the rich policies that shifted much of the tax burden from the wealthy to the middle income groups. They are accusing Mellon, in other words, of spare the rich policies and say he, quote, shifted much of the tax burden from the wealthy to the middle income groups. Totally incorrect. The tax burden, as we've seen, was shifted to the wealthy people and the people in the lower income groups had more tax relief, even proportionally, than the people in the upper income groups. It's the same error that Woodward and Schlesinger made in their textbook. Who knows? Maybe they, when they're writing their textbooks, they're reading one another. Despite the fake history from the current group of textbooks, Andrew Mellon made a substantial contribution to the United States. And to put this in perspective, we had a failed presidency when we grew government under Woodrow Wilson. 
We shrunk the size of government and we increased the private sector and we had prosperity in the 1920s. In the 1930s, we're going to go back to the 70 plus percent tax rates on the rich and that will help perpetuate the Great Depression. So what we see are depressed periods in the 19-teens with the growth of government. We see the restraints by government taken off some in the 1920s and we see the return of prosperity then we're going to see the growth of government again in the 1930s. Andrew Mellon stands out in that period as someone who favored policies that benefited Americans, and he was a spark plug to American prosperity in the 1920s. Two excellent books on Andrew Mellon that I do recommend are a biography of Andrew Mellon and then a book that Andrew Mellon wrote himself. The biography is by David Canadine, and it's entitled Mellon, An American Life. It's a good book. The book that Mellon wrote was actually a bestseller in the 1920s. It is entitled Taxation, the People's Business. It's good to hear Mellon in his own words. And that concludes today's episode of Books with Bert. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any other place where you can get podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And if you liked today's episode on Andrew Mellon and you want to find more content to fill your heart with love for America and for conservative ideas, be sure to check out YAF.org. The conservative movement starts here. Until next time, keep reading.